1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, let's take a moment to sit, to be quiet before we keep going. Maybe you'll take this moment to consider how you're feeling before we move forward. Invite Jesus into that place and we'll continue in 1 Peter where we have been for the last number of weeks. So it is you, Father God, that we sit under today. 
is under your son that we celebrate what he has accomplished for us and we are empowered and filled with your spirit and so I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and in our lives and in our minds and in our emotions to reveal to us who it is that you are and who it is that you would have us be based upon what you have done for us in Christ. I pray that we would submit ourselves to you and that you would do the work of sanctification in our lives and in our hearts. We are desperate for your touch today to be reminded once again of your goodness, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good regardless of the circumstances and the situations that we find ourselves in. And so we thank you for this letter that Peter wrote to these churches. May it encourage us as well today. Amen. Well, I just want to note before we begin that I did not set this up in any specific way um, ahead of this morning, knowing the events of the last week. This is, I believe, God's providence to us in setting forth for us these particular verses and this particular text at this particular time in our church life and for our church community. And I say that to say that God is at work and God is going to do something both in your life and in my life and in our time together today that I believe will be meaningful and important for our church family as we move forward. He is always in the business of wanting to teach us something. And as we have seen in this series of 1 Peter, as we have been exploring it, is that God will oftentimes use suffering to do what he could not do through anything else. Spencer talked last week about the opportunity that suffering actually provides for us. And we'll see in the text today the ongoing results of what happens in the midst of suffering, what testing and trials mean. We've also seen in the text of 1 Peter the power and the, the incredible reality of God's goodness in the gospel. We've seen how the work of Christ changes how we see the world around us. We see and we have seen how it changes the way that we actually live in community with one another. That he encourages us to love one another. May the world around you see the good news of Christ in your life, both in what you say and in what you do, so that they have a reason to ask you for the hope that is rising up within you. He then says, and he encourages them at one point, to put away all malice, envy, strife, and slander. You maybe remember that message where I walked out each of those things in turn and talked about the damaging consequences that they can mean for the Christian church if those things are not put away. And then how we respond and how we live in such a way that the world around us would see that we are followers of Jesus. And today we arrive at a text in which Peter wants to continue. It's a new section of his letter. He wants to remind us of some things that he's already said, but also accentuate his points in other ways. And as you've heard the text, he also wants to challenge the leaders that are in these churches. And so if you would go with me, we are going to go through this line by line. I'm going to do my best to serve our community well as I have done the reading and research and prayed that the Spirit would use this and that we would sit under it. And so if you have your Bibles, let's start in verse 12, in which Peter writes to this body of churches, this churches in this dispersion, and he begins, as he also addresses them in chapter 2, verse 11, and he says, Beloved. Don't you love that? Beloved. Why are they beloved? Well, they're loved by God. You are loved by God, and so therefore your identity, I can address you as the Beloved. Beloved, he's about to challenge them. So it's, you know, it's beautiful that he begins to, by addressing them as the beloved because look what he is going to go on to say. 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's, he's saying a couple of things, right? It's somewhat clear, but I think it's worth mentioning the point again. He says, do not be surprised by suffering. Come on, Peter. Do not be surprised by suffering. Essentially, he's saying, expect it to come. Suffering is inevitable. This is something that we explored a number of weeks ago, yet he's making the point again. Don't be surprised by it. Why is Peter doing this? Well, he's setting his readers up for future success because he understands that there is going to be a growing intensity to suffering that is to come. So don't be surprised when it comes. I'm preparing you for it. It's going to get difficult. Because if they are surprised by suffering, they may ultimately conclude that God does not love them and Peter ultimately does not want this to happen. You will suffer. God still loves you. He then goes on and says that the purpose of our suffering is actually to test and refine your faith. Therefore, don't be surprised by it. This goes back to the theme that Peter actually began laying out for his readers in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 7. You maybe remember it. It's going to be on our screen. He says, In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As a reminder, God does something in our faith and in our character when we suffer that he would not do through anything else. And at this point, we have to either say, I believe that, or we don't. But this is what he has said. That suffering does something in our faith and in our character that God, for whatever reason, says this is only going to happen through this experience. So don't be surprised because it's purposed. He transitions to give us the answer to the question of what's the alternative to be surprised? What should our response then be? If we're not to be surprised by suffering, what our response to it be? He says, but in so it rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, once again, Peter, you're crazy. What does he say? What should our response be to suffering rather than being surprised? Rejoice! You know the song we sing here? Rejoice! You don't have to continue it. You maybe get the point. It's easy to sing that song when we've had good weeks. He's saying, no, that ought to be your response when you've had a tough one. When you go through repeated weeks of difficulty. That our response to our suffering ought to be rejoice. And then he clarifies, well, why? Because one, well, to suffer for Christ is to actually share in the sufferings of Christ. He's saying rejoice because you are persist participating in the same way that Christ also suffered. And how you respond to suffering is an indication of whether or not you actually belong to God. So one, to suffer for Christ is to share in the sufferings of Christ. That ought to be a point of rejoicing, that I am suffering as Christ suffered. Secondly... There is a future glory that is going to be revealed. He's talking about the future salvation hope that repeatedly has come up, right? We, we so often focus in on our lives now that we forget our destination. Spurgeon 
says this, death is no punishment to the believer. It is the gate of endless joy. So we can rejoice because we know that this time now is not all there is and that we will experience a future salvation and glory with Christ forever. And then thirdly, he says, you're blessed. (laughs) What? Verse 14, he rationalizes this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of Christ, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Well, why blessed? To be insulted for the name of Christ is proof that the spirit of God rests upon you. In other words, you have the spirit as you suffer. You're blessed. You're blessed. You know, this is actually also what Jesus says. Uh, Maybe some of you are familiar with Jesus. In Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12, he says this. It's on the screen for us. Blessed are you. What? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's a tricky one. Rejoice and be glad. Notice where our reward is, for your reward is great in heaven. He's pointing us to the future. Stop looking downwards. Eyes up. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's reminding them, yet again, of the future glory that they will experience and the example that has been set before them. You know, Peter goes on in verses 15 and 16 to add a qualifier for the type of suffering that he is speaking about. You know, just in case anyone says, you know, it's anything. You know, he, he, he writes, verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. First, what type of suffering is he talking about? Well, he's saying, do not suffer for doing wrong. You should not suffer for doing evil. You might ask the question, well, what's this all about? And I I got to thinking about parenting. And if you are a parent or you've been around little kids, you maybe understand that when at one, the first child, there's always an, an initiator, right? And the first child pushes the other child, and then the other child, to retaliate, pushes back, right? I think this is what Peter is, is getting at. It says, you might suffer, someone else might initiate against you, but don't initiate back. Resist getting back at the person for hurting you. If you are going to be persecuted, do not murder, do not be a thief, do not be an evildoer in response. Therefore, he is saying, do not rejoice in suffering if you're responding to it poorly. (laughs) Accept the suffering for what it is. And then secondly, so do not suffer for doing wrong. He says, secondly, suffer for being a Christian. Now, believe it or not, early believers in the church did not typically call themselves Christians. The name was actually first given to them by outsiders in Antioch. You can look at Acts 11, verse 26. And as Christianity merged as a distinct entity from Judaism, Christians ultimately then had no legal status as a religion. So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge that Peter is providing, and he is ultimately saying, do not be ashamed to speak about Christ. Persevere in your faith and glorify God as you live out your faith following the way of Jesus, regardless of what comes against you. I mean, this is, this is challenging. Can we just identify that for a moment here? Like, sometimes we can read through it, we can rush through it and forget what he's actually saying. Like, this is hard. What's your response 
Does anything ever hold you back from talking about Jesus because you worry how people might think about you? You know, here would be a little bit further down the line. Maybe they're speaking about Jesus. Their life is being taken in. They're seeing the example. Now they're suffering or receiving reviling or being made fun of for it. How do you respond? Do you try to defend yourself? How often do we try to defend ourselves on Facebook? You know, you see the, the replies. Do, 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 do. You know? Revile back. Receive it. You share with Christ when you are persecuted, when you are reviled. Peter now goes on in verse 17 to dig in a little bit more into the suffering for being a Christian. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the, and the sinner? What was Peter saying here about suffering? And the answer to that question is he's saying is that suffering for being a Christian is a form of God's judgment to purify and to refine the community of faith for our future salvation. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary helps us understand the point, and he says, the judgment that begins with God's people purifies those who truly belong to God, and that purification comes through suffering making believers morally fit for their inheritance. He is not saying that you receive your salvation because of your moral fitness. We receive salvation because of what Christ has done for us in his grace. But that as we grow to become more like Christ, suffering does something in us to better prepare us for that future glory. And Peter adds verse 18 for his listeners and readers to consider the terrible reality for those who are apart from Christ. Because what he is saying is, while suffering is difficult now, by participating in the pain of following Christ, believers will escape God's just wrath on the guilty in the future. I mean, he's, he's not mincing words here. He's making it very clear, the, the, the role of suffering in the life of a believer and the role that God plays in it and can play in it and the result of what it can mean for us. And so we're challenged with this, do I believe it or do I not? But you must ask the question of, do I trust it or do I not trust it? Peter now, in verse 19, is going to summarize and make his point based on what he said. Verse 19, therefore, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, woe, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What's he saying? Entrust your lives to your faithful creator and trust that nothing comes against you apart from God's loving, sovereign control. And that will be painful. And those who follow Jesus can be confident that God will not allow them to suffer beyond their capacity and that he will actually provide them the strength to endure. So therefore, sufferers, entrust yourself to God and continue to do good. Why? Was this not what Jesus did and what his spirit ultimately empowers us to do? Isaiah 53, verse 7, a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that 
before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What do we see here? Well, Jesus asks us nothing to do that not, he has not already done, and he asks us to follow his example. If you follow Jesus, you follow one who suffered. Expect suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. It will refine you. It is used of God's judgment to purify his, his bride, his church, so that we are better prepared for his return. And he does not leave us alone. He empowers us by his spirit. Wow. Imagine being there, right? Listening to this all those years ago. And we're sitting here under it now. It's heavy. Entrust yourselves to God. Trust him. Follow Christ. Now, Peter is going to switch gears here. And as I said, I did not plan all of this like some evil genius. And so he goes on to challenge the leaders, particularly the church elders. Why? Because, well, the suffering might hit the leaders of the church first. I mean, that makes sense, right? Here are the, the, those that are leading the community. Let's get the leaders first. And so he goes on to challenge the elders to encourage them. But as we'll see here, he exhorts them. So what does he write to the elders? First verse of chapter 5. He writes, So I exhort... The elders among you, now I don't know about you, but I do not use the word exhort uh, very often. Maybe I should introduce it into my vocabulary. Is anyone here willing to take, you know, you know kudos for using the word exhort? Uh, I mean, you're free to raise your hand and put yourself on the spot there. But, you know, we don't oftentimes use the word exhort. So what does exhort mean? It means to strongly encourage or to urge someone to do something. It's to encourage, it's to call on, it's to enjoin, it's to adjure, it's to charge, it's to try to persuade, it's to press, it's to put pressure on. Right? It's not like, hey, I've got a couple suggestions for you. No, I exhort you, I encourage you, I challenge you, I try to persuade you. So I encourage and try to persuade you elders. And you might ask the question, well, why does have a Peter, why does he have the right to try to persuade them, right? Like if someone's trying to persuade you to do something, you sort of say, who is this person? And do they have the right to speak to me? Well, Peter lists some qualifiers here. He says, I'm a fellow elder. He uh, appeals to them actually using the same title you know, he doesn't refer to himself as an apostle in this point. He's enjoining himself to him. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of one of you here, a fellow elder. He then says, I'm a witness of Christ's sufferings. He was a witness to the sufferings of Jesus. Peter knows, therefore, that suffering is going to be our pathway to glory, to redemption, to reconciliation, ultimately with God. And then he says, I'm a sharer of the glory to come. This is the glory that's going to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. So he's enjoining himself to them. He's saying, I'm a fellow elder. I saw Christ suffer. Suffering is part of what it means to grow. And we're also going to be celebrating Christ's return one day together. We are enjoined together forever. He's not trying to say, I'm way over here and I'm above you. He's saying, no, let's lock arms together as I exhort you. And so we ask the question, well, what does he encourage, pressure them to do? 
writes verse 2, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being example to the flock. He exhorts them to do three things. Let's take each in turn. He says, shepherd and oversee the church, i.e. the flock, because it is God's will, not because it's an obligation. There's two points there that need to be made. Shepherd the flock of God. Who does the flock belong to? God. And so what Peter is pointing out to them is that your role is temporary. And they are given the responsibility and the privilege of caring for it. And what are they to do? They're to shepherd the flock. As a shepherd cares for his flock, so are elders to care for the church. What does this mean? What is a shepherd's responsibility? Well, one, a shepherd's responsibility is to feed the flock, right? To make sure that they have food that is nourishing, that will help them grow. They're to preach the gospel. They're to make sure that the doctrine of the church is right. Because sheep need fed. They're also, as shepherds, they're they're supposed to protect the flock. They're to guard the doctrine of the church. Elders are the ones that are called to admit and dismiss church members. To welcome into membership when people apply, to have conversations, to say, do you understand what it means to be a member of our church community? How can we care for you? How can we protect you? How can we walk alongside of you as we care for you because we're called to shepherd you? We're not called to stand at a distance away. We're called to care for you. We're called to connect with you. We want to be involved with you. We're not some board that is never identified or recognized or is just on a website. We are people that are supposed to be within our flock, caring for you, connecting with you, loving you, making sure that you feel shepherded, making sure you know our names. They are then to guide the flock, as a shepherd should, right? They're to lead the church where it needs to go, even if the flock refused to go. You know, I have never been a shepherd of actual physical sheep. You know, whoa, you, know, you shouldn't be surprised. I do not, maybe with my beard, I maybe look more like one. But you understand, I, I'm, I'm not a rural person in this way. I've never lived on a farm. But I've read a bit about shepherding. And shepherds are required naturally to lead their flock to greener pastures, right? The, you think about a pasture and it starts being eaten away. Nick Carney and I were talking about this on Friday night, and the requirement of a shepherd is to lead the flock to a greener pasture before the current pasture has been fully eaten through, or else a day will come where the sheep can't eat anything. Which means for the sheep, they're like, why are you making us leaves? Things still look good here. They're to shepherd the flock of God. They're to guide them. And then he also adds this, Peter adds next, he says, shepherd the flock of God, but not out of compulsion. Or in other ways of saying, not because you have to. He's saying, serve with a wholehearted desire, which God desires for them and will ultimately give them. Don't do it as an obligation. Don't have somebody sitting in leadership who's like, well, you know, I have to. Ugh. They're not going to do that job well. But then you also ask the question in difficult seasons of why would you want to do that job? 
So then you must submit yourself under God and say, God, well, if you're going to encourage me and sustain me, give me encouragement and sustenance now, because this is hard. Serve me. Jesus, help me. Lead me forward. So he starts by shepherd and oversee the church. Then he says, be eager in fulfilling your task, not out of greedy financial gain. Now this might seem odd in our context because our elders, they do not receive money for what they do. And myself as a staff elder, I am paid, but I have a salary that is based on the review of the other elders. But the point Peter is getting at is important. He's saying, do not take a leadership responsibility out of greed or a desire for more. This is very key. The intentions of a leader are always put into question, right? It's always challenged. I remember actually Spencer's dad's name is Steve. Some of you know this, some of you do not. And I remember when I was first planting, I asked Steve, I said, Steve, I was a young leader trying to, you know, think about this. What ought to I to be looking out for? And he told me three things. Some of you have maybe heard these things before. He said, babes, three Bs, okay, easy to remember. Babes, so, so women, we've all heard stories of uh, pastors falling susceptible to uh, sexual temptation. Babes, bucks, money, big shots, pride. Pride. Put another way, each and every single one of us are tempted to, I believe, four different idols. One is approval. You get into leadership because you want the approval of yourself. Or you want the approval of other people. The, the challenge is then when you don't have the approval of people that you're leading, what do you do? What about the idol of comfort? Uh, you want comfort of yourself as a leader or maybe you want the comfort from other people. Again, we got to ask the question, well, what do you do when it gets uncomfortable as a leader? Or how about control? Maybe you want control over yourself or maybe you want control other, over other people. He's saying, don't do this. Don't, don't do this task. Be eager in fulfilling your task, but don't do it for the desire for control. And then lastly, power. Again, a power over self and over other people. And so look what he says next, which leads us into the next exhortation. Live as examples to the flock rather than using authority to be domineering. Examples. Do not function as oppressors. Function as examples. Exemplify to others the character of Christ, not to boss people around. Man. You know, they say of all forms of leadership, you know, you say more in, in what you do rather than what you say, right? I, I speak to our church community a lot. I pray my example is greater than my words. We trust and pray that our elders are serving our body. They are part of our missional communities. They respond to the needs of our church. We, we, we require them to do that. And we also require that they have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Because when we're going through things as a church body, is it an expectation that they have an ongoing relationship with Jesus so that none of the other elders have the question of, does this person love Jesus or not? Do they have the right intentions or not? No, we know that they have an ongoing commitment to Jesus and they're walking out their discipleship intentionally. We want you to have that same confidence in the eldership of our church. And so why are elders to do this? And the answer, Jesus, use your authority to serve as Jesus serves us. Mark 10, verse 45, for even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And then Peter adds an addition to encourage the elders. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears. So we started with shepherd the flock of God. Who does the flock belong to? God. Are elders the ultimate shepherds? No. Who do elders answer to? The chief shepherd. And who is the chief shepherd? Jesus. You see the hierarchy? You know, while I answer to the board, our elders, I ultimately answer to Jesus. He's my boss. Uh, You know, and for all of us, Jesus is our boss. Are we living, are we serving as God calls us to live and to serve? Do we answer to him? And so what Peter is reminding them once again is that you are fundamentally servants and your position is a temporary one. Don't get too high and mighty. And then he says that they will receive an unfading crown of glory. Uh, Crowns at this point, contextually, were given to athletic victories and military conquests. What he's ultimately saying is that your labor towards others will have a great reward and joy. And so elders, as difficult as this task and role may be, remember who is the chief shepherd and what he has promised you for your faithful service. Now, Peter does not just exhort the elders, he now goes on to exhort another group. Verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This is obviously a word. He says younger in the church. Why why younger? Well, I was younger at one point. Many of you will say, well, you're young. Yes, I am. You know, I have been encouraged by Peter's words to Timothy. Let no one look down on you for your age. It is difficult to serve in the role that I do. I'm not doing this to get any pity. But it is difficult to serve in the role that I do given my age. But when I was 21 to 25 and I was serving in a local church, I thought I knew more than the elders and the pastor that I was serving under. I have to be honest and confess that there was even parts of me when I planted that was a bit of a, I want to do things different than the way you're doing them. And I've had a lot of moments in the journey where I've had to stop and realize some of my false intentions. I've had to confess them and repent and also realize that a lot of the challenges, a lot of the things that we're facing are the same as what the pastor and elders were facing when I was serving under them. Why? People are still people. People still struggle. People make mistakes. Anytime you do something with people, there's going to be problems. Right? Yet I was in a position, because of my immaturity, because of my pride, that I said, I think I know better than them. Why? Because of my age, my immaturity. And so, you know, I can connect with what is happening here, as Peter says. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Be subject. Obey. You know, a few weeks ago we talked about, you know, our submission to our government, our submission of of, of slaves to masters. We talked about this. What is that ultimately practicing out submission to and who? To God? So Peter is encouraging those in the church now, obey so, so, so long as you are not being led to disobey God's moral standard or, or violate the gospel. Outside of that, su- submit, obey, be willing to entrust yourselves to the elders. 
I will say it yet again, I did not come up with some evil genius plan to preach this text given the events of this past week. Peter continues, as a word to all of us, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We are all, Christians and non-Christian alike, self-directed in our nature. You wake up in the morning, is your first thought, how can I, what can I do for everybody else today? Oftentimes we are self-directed in our nature, and he says, your response to this self-direction should be to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Well, he quotes Proverbs 3, verse 34, because God opposes the proud, but he gives his grace to the humble. And believers ought to be increasingly humble because we understand God's grace towards us in Christ. He goes on to press on humility even more, and he says, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore. Why do we humble ourselves? So that at the prop, under, how, sorry, verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore. How do we humble ourselves? You ever wondered, how can I humble myself? He tells us, under the mighty hand of God. When you consider your own resume versus the resume of an all-powerful, everywhere at once, perfect God, it ought to bring about humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, how? Under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When we humble ourselves and when we trust Christ, we will ultimately then cast our concerns on him because we understand who he is and therefore who we are. We'll trust God's sovereign hand even as we suffer. We trust and we know that God will exalt and reward us. He'll vindicate his people. And we trust that God cares for us. I would encourage you with that just for a moment as we pause. God cares for you. God cares for you. Close your eyes. God cares for you. God cares for you. He loves you. He's for you. He's not against you in Christ. He cares for you. Peter continues. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, this is, I think we could all say, okay, you know, good general advice, command for followers of Jesus. But notice what he says next. Why ought we to be sober-minded, and why should we be watchful? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter is once again building out the proactive nature that we need to be approaching our lives with. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. I have a couple of quotes on the screen for us. If you're unfamiliar with The Screwtape Letters, it is a demon named Screwtape writing to his um, uh, nephew, a younger demon, how to properly tempt believers, tempt human beings. Whatever their bodies do affects their souls. 
It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. When you and I are apathetic and when we are unaware, the devil has some of his greatest victories in our lives. When we are apathetic and unaware, or when we get to a place where we're like, I'm doing pretty good. I don't need to dig in. He has some of his greatest victories, and believers must war against the devil, the world, and the flesh, as we have seen in this letter. We then ask the question, well, how do we do it? He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. But then in verse 9, resist him. And you might be saying, okay, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> right? Resist him. How? He tells us next, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Gives us two ways. One, you resist him by being firm in your faith. This is your dependence on the gospel. It's your knowledge of who God is, of what God has done, of what that, who that means you are, and then what you are to go and do. What this means, yet again, is that resistance to the devil is not passive or reactive. It is active and proactive engagement. You've maybe heard of the television show. um, It was called A Thousand Ways to Die. Any of you have heard this? If you've ever watched that show, sometimes or heard of the stories of this show, you can watch this. And at the end of it, you sort of go, okay, like, that's a weird way to die, but come on! There's this one of this woman that walks out, you know, and she's coming up towards a lion. And this lion ends up, like, mauling her. And you're sort of like, yeah, like, sure, it's maybe tame, but it's a lion. It's going to kill you. And this is the way that, you know, Peter uses to describe the devil. He's a roaring lion. But also notice how he describes Jesus as the shepherd caring for his sheep, who will protect his sheep from the lion. So he says, first, you must be firm in your faith, but then secondly, you have the assurance of knowing that you're not ultimately alone in your fight. He says, there's other believers that are experiencing the same sufferings. There are other believers who are going through similar things. And everyone in the Christian faith will receive at different levels the same rejection and discrimination for faith in Christ. And this is why it is so incredibly essential to live life in community, a place where you can empathize and share life with one another, encouraging one another and spurring one another on to greater faithfulness. It is impossible to live the Christian faith alone. I mean, people have done it, but it is so hard that way. The scriptures are written to groups of people to be practiced in community. This is why we emphasize community. And especially if you're trying to to wage war against the devil. You need other people to call you out. Because all of us are blind. We have blind spots. Yet when you live life in community, you have other people who could say, Hey, you, don't forget this. 
Are you seeing clearly? And so in summary from all of the text today, what is Peter telling us and reminding us as he was telling the readers back then? It says, entrust yourselves to God by doing good while suffering, as Jesus did. Elders, shepherd and lead as examples, following your example, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And to the rest of us, humble yourselves and resist the devil by looking to Christ and the Christian community, past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. Now, this is heavy stuff. It's not easy to read the scriptures. It's even more challenging when the Spirit of God is at work, taking the scriptures and pressing upon our hearts the truths of God's word, convicting us of our sin, challenging us to consider how we are living, who we are. Maybe for some of us in this room, you've never committed your life to Christ. This is a new experience for you. I would invite you to turn from your sin, to repent, to trust in Jesus for your salvation. And to understand who he is and that God cares for you. He wants you. He'll give you his spirit who empowers you and enables you to go through any situation that you will face. That doesn't mean that it will be easy. But that God will use it to build your character and to bring glory to his name. And I think that there's ultimately no better way to respond to what we have heard this morning than in going to the table, the Lord's table of communion. Again, I do not want to minimize the events and the experience of our church community in light of this text. And communion is an opportunity for us to do some introspection to ask, how am I doing? Who am I trusting in? Who am I believing? Am I believing lies of Satan? Am I believing the truth of who God is and what he's done, and therefore who I am? Do I have bitterness or resentment towards those who are in this church community? Ought I to go and to reconcile? The scriptures would tell you to go and to reconcile, to make sure you're united with a brother or sister before coming to the Lord's table. And so maybe in this time you need to do that. I'd encourage you literally to get up out of your seat and go to that person that you need to be reconciled with. Or allow communion to pass before you today and plan to follow up this week with that individual to restore, to see redemption and reconciliation come to that relationship. Because in communion, we come to remember and to reflect upon what Christ has done for us and the reconciliation and redemption that he has brought in our relationship with God. And so if we are living out of that reconciliation with other human beings, we ought to be united to reconcile before we celebrate the reconciliation of the Lamb. And so I'd encourage you to do that. If you are not a follower of Jesus... I encourage you to let the elements as we take them to pass. There will come a day where we hope and pray that you will come to know Jesus and therefore understand what these elements are and what they mean. But don't do that now. 
And for the rest of us, I want to encourage us with these words from Romans 8, verse 11, and then also verses 14 to 17. This is a hope and a promise for those of us who are in Christ. This is Paul writing to the Roman church. He says, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Do you want to come to life today? Maybe you feel like a zombie. Maybe you feel lifeless in some way. The Spirit of God, the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, if you trust and put your faith in Jesus Christ, repent from your sin, you are given the same Spirit. He comes and dwells in you. He will fill you. He will give you his, the fruit of the Spirit. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're stirring up in our hearts this morning. I have been so challenged by 1 Peter. The words of Peter do not agree with my cultural views that so often are at play in my life, in the world that we live in, and in our Guelph, the city of Guelph. Yet before us are truths. And so I pray that you would continue to challenge us with them, impressing upon us to ask the question of, do I trust these words or not? And I pray now that as we respond that we would remember the great price that it cost Jesus. That you, Father, gave your Son for our redemption. And if any of us are confused as to why you would do that, may we were reminded and hear today that it's because you care for us. You care for us so much that you sent your Son to live the life that we could never live die the death that we should die because of our sin and you're raised to newness of life so that we can look forward to resurrection so fill us we pray remind us who we are and not what we have been telling ourselves who we are through the flesh what the world says about us or what the devil is trying to tell us either we pray these things in your name amen